Well, good evening, ABC College. Hope you're doing well on this Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in to our series we're calling CORE, looking at theology and doctrine here during the summer. Uh, if you've been following along with us for the past couple of weeks, you know we've been really answering two specific questions. First off, we looked at what is the Bible and why can we trust it? And then last week, we began a conversation talking about God. And specifically, we've been honing in on the question of the Trinity and what does that really mean and trying to even wrap our heads around this idea, as difficult as it is, of God being a Trinity. So we'd love to have you guys go check out these videos. They're on Facebook and YouTube. But for this week, we're going to continue uh, this conversation. But before we do that, I want to do a quick kind of recap and remind you of a couple of things we talked about last week so we can kind of continue this conversation. Last week, we gave a kind of simple three-part definition to what the Trinity is. And I want to review that for a second. We'll be here on the side. Uh, but we gave a three-part definition. We said that the first def- part of the definition is that there's one God. The second part is that God is three distinct persons. And the third part we saw, that each person is fully God. And we'll get more into that tonight, but that's kind of the simple definition that we use for the Trinity. And then after that, we looked at how God is love, how His name is Yahweh, even how He describes Himself in Exodus 34. And then we looked at some support for the Trinity in the Old and New Testament. So I hope that was helpful for you last week, because as we begin this second part of the conversation, I understand that the Trinity is not something that's easy to understand at all. We're we're lying to ourselves if we pretend that we can fully explain it or fully um, understand it. Um, And maybe in your own faith, you've struggled before with this idea of the Trinity. Maybe it's even been a source of you doubting your faith as you move beyond doubting the Trinity and even begin to doubt uh, all of your faith because the Trinity... Maybe it doesn't seem to make sense to you. Or maybe you've had some non-Christian friends who have kind of criticized the doctrine of the Trinity and used that as ammunition to maybe disprove your faith. I understand those struggles. So I'm hoping to give you a little bit more equipping tonight, maybe a few more tools to understand the Trinity, to be able to explain it more to yourself and to other people. So tonight our objective is this. Our objectives are we're going to first look at the history of the Trinity in church history. Uh, Second off, we'll talk about how we can get the Trinity wrong, some misunderstandings we can have about it. And then third, we'll talk about why the Trinity really matters, uh, why it's important, you know, how it can even affect our daily life. Okay, so that's the plan for tonight. So the first part of the conversation is let's talk about the history of the Trinity uh, for just a minute. So first off, we got to remember that Christians, we inherit, uh, you know, our faith heritage from the Old Testament and from the Jews. And so the first Christians then were Jewish believers. Back in the book of Acts, the apostles, they were raised Jews. And since they were Jews, you know, they believed that there's only one God, and they believed that His name is Yahweh. You know, and, and early Christians continued in that belief, and they added on to it not only that there's one God, but they began to get this more clear concept of the Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you want an early example of this outside of the Bible, just consider, consider the Apostles' Creed. Which is titled that, but the apostles themselves didn't write it. But it's kind of a you know summation of what the apostles would have handed down to the early Christians. You've probably heard it before. We even have a couple of worship songs that use the Apostles' Creed. But even in the Apostles' Creed, we see a Trinitarian structure, as it's broken down into three sections. Uh, the first section begins with you know I believe in God the Father. Second section begins with I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In the third section, it says I believe in the Holy Spirit. So right there, you know, that's a very ancient creed. But in that creed, we see the the teaching of the Trinity from a very early 
age, very early history in church history. So we have that. But there's also Tertullian, a guy we mentioned last week who, who gave us the word Trinity. Uh, he was a Christian and an early church father uh, back in the early 3rd century. And he kind of began this more nuanced conversation talking about how God is three in one. Like I said, he gave us the Trinity. He also gave us you know, words like God being the same substance in all different three pieces of the Trinity, that all three parts of the Trinity are of the same essence. Words we'll talk about more later. But he even began uh, giving us more words to use even as early as the third century. And also, we have the three major church councils that happened that really gave us a lot when it comes to the Trinity. Because, you know, as church history went on, believers over time began having kind of arguments and, and conflicts over what we really believe as Christians, uh, what the Bible was really teaching. And so church leaders began to convene in these councils where they would uh, talk about, you know, what's being taught in their churches, what they see in the Scripture. they talk about theology and they would make some decisions that then were representative for kind of all of the church at that time. And there's three main church councils that I want us to look at that give us some info about the history of the Trinity. Uh, the first major council was, you may have heard it before, uh, but the Council of Nicaea happened in 325 AD, so still very early compared to where we're at today. But this meeting was a meeting of about 300 church bishops, and they met together to mainly talk about the issue of Arianism. Uh, Arianism uh, taught that Jesus was a created angel instead of being fully God, and said he was created by God. That's what they taught. And so therefore, Jesus wasn't God. And that was spreading in the churches at the time. So the Council of Nicaea met together really to discuss this issue. And ultimately what they did is this, is that they agreed that Jesus is God. But they said it you know, a little bit more nuanced. They said that Jesus was of and is of the same substance of God. They used the word homoousius to say the same substance as the Father. So he was the same essence of God. He's God himself as well. Uh, and so they would say that the incarnate son is God. He's not just like God, but he's fully God and he has eternally always been God. And that was from the Council of Nicaea back as early as 325 AD. But also, there's also the next council called the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD. Uh, this council gathered together and agreed that not only was Jesus God, but the Holy Spirit was also fully God. And they even expanded on the Nicene Creed, which is the creed they formed at Nicaea. But they expanded on that, and they made the creed fully Trinitarian, mentioning the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all being equally fully God. So they gave us that. That's the second council. And then the third council is the Council of Chalcedon uh, back in 451 AD. Uh, this council discussed the relationship between Jesus' humanity and His divinity, something we'll talk a lot more about in a couple of weeks. But this council uh, talked about that a lot, dove deep into this conversation about it. And they were trying to make sense of how Jesus could be both fully God and fully man. And that council is the one that gave us the phrase hypostatic union. You may have heard that before if you've ever read much theology. But they gave us that phrase, which essentially means uh, that Jesus is one person with two natures, kind of fused together. He has two natures, so he's both fully God and he's fully man. It's the hypostatic union. We'll get way more into that in a couple of weeks. But that came from the, Ch the Council of Chalcedon. And that was in 451. So we see within 500 years, or really less than 500 years, of church history, we've already got a pretty clear doctrine of the Trinity that's been then handed down as Orthodox 
for a long time in the church. And really, we can sum up all these contributions that the church fathers have made and these councils have made into four phrases in church history that give us some expressions about the Trinity. And I'll give those four to you here. The first expression that we get from the history of the Trinity is one being, three persons. We've kind of expounded on this, but God is one God, and He's only made of one essence or one substance, you know, whatever that is, but it's the God essence, that's who God is. He's only made up of one of those things. And He exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but all those persons are the same essence. They're all God. They're all the same substance. They're not just three ways that God acts. They're not just three ways that God appears to people, but they are three persons, three separate persons, but all completely and fully God. That's the first thing we see. The second is this word, consubstantiality. It's a hard word to say. Consubstantiality. You're getting your uh, money's worth here this week with the big words. Uh, But this idea uh, means uh, that the same divine substance is shared between all three persons of the Trinity. That's where that kind of con and consubstantial comes from. Uh, And any essential trait that one part of the Trinity has, then all three parts of the Trinity have that. So think about it this way. You know, all three parts of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they're all eternal. They're all all all-powerful. That none of them are greater or less than the other. They are consubstantial in that way. Yet, they all are together one God. Does your head hurt yet? If not, we're getting there, okay? Uh, another phrase, another fun word here, you can get a lot of fun words tonight, is a perichoresis. I'm probably butchering that word, it's Greek. Uh, but perichoresis. But the basic meaning of this word is that the three persons of the Trinity are mutually dependent on each other. Uh, the three persons of the Trinity, they can't be disconnected from each other, but they're connected in a way that can't be separated. Uh, we see this in John 17, 21. John 17, 21, Jesus says of the Father, Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. So we see this interconnectedness even in the Father and the Son. While they're being separate, they're also deeply connected. That's perichoresis. You know, that's because they're the same God, just separate persons within the Trinity. It's kind of hard to understand, but it's true. Uh, the fourth phrase that we can see is the order of persons that there's an order of relationships within the Trinity. And we see this in Scripture, that things occur from the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. And if you read much of Paul's letters, you'll see a lot of that in the way that he writes. And that doesn't mean that the Father is more important than the Son or anything like that with the Holy Spirit. It's just the way that they relate. There's a lot we can learn from that that we'll talk about a little bit later on. But that's the order of persons in the Trinity. So that's really the bulk of what we see in church history and really the bulk of what we receive in theology for the Trinity. But I want you to know this, that there has understandably been a lot of debate about the Trinity for a long time in church history. I mean, it's, it's pretty complicated, right? It's, it's a hard thing to wrap your head around. You know, for centuries, theologians have argued you know, uh, what it means for Jesus to be the only begotten Son. You know, what does that word begotten you know, mean? Is that He was... Eternally begotten by God, like, you know, even defining that can be tricky sometimes for different people. There's also a lot of debate about in John 15, you know, what Jesus says when he means that the Spirit proceeds from the Father, you know. And these kind of arguments, honestly, have led to lots of division in the church. Um, actually, the split between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Western Roman Church back in 1054 partly was because of the Trinitarian debates. 
which admittedly that split was really way more about politics and the power of the pope than it was you know intricate theology but these kind of things have been heavily debated for um, a long time you know and we've gained a lot from people's writings on the trinity over the years but it's important to realize that as we study the trinity in the bible we got to be really careful not to try to reverse engineer more things about God than really what the Bible uh, makes clear. You know, because God reveals Himself to us as a Trinity in the way that He works in the world, but the way He works in the world does not reveal to us everything about the Trinity. He doesn't reveal to us everything about His inner life as God being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we don't want to overstate things about the Trinity based on what God has revealed to us in the Bible. Because while He's revealed plenty to us, He's not revealed everything to us. You know, if you think about it, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 29 says that there are secret things that belong to the Lord that we're not meant to understand. And I think part of the inner working of the Trinity are some of those secret things. That God has revealed to us some pretty amazing things about Himself, but He hasn't revealed everything to, to us about who He is. And honestly, if we even could understand all there is to know about the Trinity, that, that would make God something that we could fully understand on our own, which then means He's not really God, because He's not this God whose ways and thoughts are higher than ours. But He's just become something we can understand completely, something we can even like, you know, put in a test tube and diagnose, and that, that's not God. So we should expect God to be more complicated and higher than we can completely imagine. But He has given us some amazing things in His Scripture about Himself and ways we can learn more about His Trinitarian nature. So we should study it. So that's kind of some history to let you know where we got, where we come to, you know, over years in church history about the Trinity. But another question is, how can we sometimes misunderstand the Trinity? Because if, if it's been debated so long, then it's very possible that we could get some things wrong even here today. Well, while we should never expect to fully understand it, there's three ways I think we can easily get it wrong, and this has been proven over time in church history too, but three ways. Three words. It's modalism, Arianism, and tritheism. Lots of isms, okay? Uh, but the first one is modalism. Modalism, which is a misunderstanding of the Trinity, it teaches that God doesn't exist as three separate persons, but instead God appears to us in three separate modes or manifestations over time. You know, first in the Old Testament, He was God the Father who created everything and gave us the law. You know, then in the New Testament, He comes as Jesus, as the Son to give us salvation. And then in Acts and so forth, He's the, he's the Spirit who empowers us and, and gives grace. You know, but modalism would say that He's never all of those things at one time. But instead, He appears in different manifestations. Well, that's a misunderstanding in the Trinity, but it's something that's taught in some churches today. Uh, the denomination of Oneness Pentecostals, and there's a couple of different churches uh, branded with that, but Oneness Pentecostals uh, believe in modalism, you know, or they would call you know, oneness, the oneness of God. There's no Trinity. But I would challenge that thought by simply looking at the baptism story of Jesus in the Gospels. If you go read that story, which Pastor Colby um, preached on just a few weeks ago, you look at that story, you see the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit all present at the same time interacting with each other, which doesn't seem to really support the idea of those three persons of the Trinity being all the same God, but instead being at least individual persons, all still being God, if that makes sense. Okay? Now, if you want to know, understand more about why a oneness Pentecostal would believe not in the Trinity, but just in one God, you should go find one and talk to them, because they're going to explain their beliefs way better than I can. Um, but I think we can see from 
quick glance, that is probably a unhelpful and wrong interpretation of the scriptures on the Trinity. So that's modalism. Second one is Arianism. Uh, Arianism teaches that Jesus is not God, but he was created by God as the highest angel in existence. We kind of talked about this a little bit already. Um, but this was taught by a man named Arius very early in church history, and it was condemned by the Council of Nicaea. But Arianism in itself is so old that we can even read some writings that seemingly are refuting Arianism, even like the book of Colossians. Paul seems to make some allusions to this teaching when he's talking about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, that whole hymn he has seems to make it clear who Jesus is. Not, he's not created, but he's God uh, in human form. But here's the thing. Arianism is still alive and well today. It's alive and well in the Jehovah's Witness Church. You know, they believe that Jesus is the archangel Michael, that he's not God, but he was created by God. So something we need to be aware of and be careful to avoid. Uh, then the third one is tritheism, which you could probably figure out means that it, it, it teaches there's three gods, or even more than that, there's, there's a, a plurality of gods. But sometimes we can get this wrong in the Trinity by thinking that the three persons are really three separate gods, and that's not true. They're not each god separate, you know, and their own gods, but they're all one god together. And it's confusing, but it's true. But the thing is that that may seem kind of like a weird interpretation of the Trinity, but this is what Mormonism teaches. Mormons believe that, you know, God the Father is an exalted man that became God over time and that Jesus is his first spirit child between him and his wife and the spirit is another spirit child. You know, and Mormons Mormons would teach that Jesus and the Spirit are themselves on their way to becoming their own full gods who will one day rule over their own planets, and that there's tons of other gods that rule over other planets in the universe. That sounds kind of like science fiction, I know. I don't think it takes us much biblical knowledge to understand the Bible You know, kind of doesn't teach that. But if you read the Book of Mormon, it's going to support that. But the Book of Mormon in and of itself is honestly, it's not a very trustworthy book. It's not take doesn't take much research to find out. It's a lot of reasons we probably shouldn't trust the Book of Mormon, but that's what it teaches, and that's the Mormon take on what the Trinity is. So this is alive and well today. We have to be careful for this. But practically for us, you know, maybe you're not being tempted by Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness or Oneness Pentecostalism. For us, one thing we need to be careful about is maybe trying to overstate the Trinity in ways that are probably just too much and not helpful, or not helpful for us. Uh, the way we tend to do this these days is we, we use analogies that really aren't helpful with the Trinity. You know, maybe you've heard a pastor before say that the Trinity is like water. You know, it can exist in three different you know, essences or, or forms all at the same time. You know? But honestly, if you look at the list of misunderstandings we just saw, that's modalism, right? Because water... Really, really, only can exist in one form at one time, depending on the conditions. There may be some weird science you can come up with, but on average, water is always only ice, steam, or liquid, and it's never multiple at the same time. So that's a mode of water. It's modalism. So it's probably not a helpful analogy to use, although I get the intent of trying to do it, but probably not helpful. Uh, maybe you've heard the Trinity is like an egg. You know, you have like the shell and the yolk, you know, and the, the egg white or whatever, they all exist as one egg, right? Well, that's actually probably tritheism because you can separate all three parts of the egg and they still can exist separately. 
So that's really kind of like a tritheistic kind of idea. You know, you see what I mean? I'm not trying to nitpick analogies too much. You know, if you've, if you've used that before, I'm not, you know, picking on you. But I think we seem to be careful about the analogies because honestly, there's not really many helpful analogies to describe the Trinity because it's, it's a mystery. But I think there is a helpful picture, if you, if you want that, that can describe the Trinity, but it's literally like a picture. So I'm going to put this on the screen. Over here on the side, you see this kind of triangle kind of shape. And you see some things pointed out in this that I, it's, I, think, I think it's a helpful way to describe the Trinity. If you kind of go around, we see that the Father is God, but the Father is not the Son. And the Son is God, but the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God, but the Holy Spirit is not the Father. We see this kind of triangle picture going on that I think gives us a helpful way to kind of get our minds around the Trinity. It doesn't answer all of our questions about it, but I think it gives us a good visual. You can Google that and find that pretty quick. But that's my favorite kind of picture of the Trinity. I kind of stay away from analogies because I think they overstate their case and honestly can lead you more into heresy than you probably want to go. Okay? So that's kind of misunderstandings of the Trinity. All right, well, Here's, we've done all the theology stuff now. Well, let's get practical for a few minutes. Like, why does this all really matter? Why does it matter that we get this right? Why does it matter that we, we talk about this? Well, I'll give you a couple of reasons. First off, the Trinity matters because it is who God is. That God has chosen to reveal Himself to us, and He is Trinitarian. So we want to be careful to have an accurate picture of God. It's how He's revealed Himself to us. But second, this also matters because it shows us how much God loves us. And what I mean by that? Well, God knows, believe me, God knows, that the Trinity is really difficult to understand. Impossible for us, really. But God has still chosen to reveal Himself to us as the Trinity, because that's what He is. Anyway, and think about it this way. You know, the, the more that you love somebody, the more you naturally want to reveal more of yourself, more of your life, more of your personality to that person, right? I think about me and my wife, Haley, when we first started dating, the more I got to know her, the more I fell in love with her, the more I wanted to bring her into my life, to you know, let her know who I really was, to introduce her to my friends and family and my personality more. And I wanted her to know me, you know, just more and more. Well, the same really exists with God, that God loves us so much that He's chosen to reveal Himself, to reveal such a central aspect of His character to us because He wants us to know Him intimately. That he loves us. He wants to reveal more of his personality, if you will, to us in the Trinity. So God showing us the mysteries of the Trinity, even if we can't fully understand it, is a sign of how much he loves us. Another thing, thirdly, the Trinity also helps us uh, better relate to God. You know, think about it this way. God the Father shows us the kind of loving relationship that we can have with God as he cares for us, as he provides for us, as he teaches us. You know, God the Son, he shows us the perfect way that we can relate to God the Father and He shows us how great God's love is, that He would send His only Son to die for us. God the Spirit shows us the power we have access in to knowing God. And it shows us the kind of intimate relationship God wants to have with us as He would come and dwell inside of us as His Spirit. So see all the things that we can learn just by looking at God as Trinity and how we can relate to Him. And fourth, why does this matter? Well, fourth, the Trinity shows us for our need for a relationship with God. Because honestly, our deepest longings and our deepest desires in life are all really an expression of our desire to have a relationship with the Trinitarian God of the Bible. You know, that we all want to love someone that we can trust, you know, that we can find faithful, who will be selfless for us, who, who we can um, really trust. We all want uh, unity and peace in the world. 
But we also want people to be able to express the diversity of who they are in the world. So we want unity within, the, within diversity. You know, all of us want to be known deeply and know people deeply. All of us want true community where we, where we feel like we can be ourselves, but we also feel like we're a part of something much bigger than ourselves. We even prize humility in our culture, where people pour themselves out for the sake of others. We see that all the time now on the news, how we have people uh, celebrating uh, medical workers right now and first responders and everyone who's dealing with the COVID crisis. We have people honking horns and, and waving signs and lights and all kinds of stuff all the time to celebrate them, that, that we love that kind of stuff where people are humble enough to celebrate those that are really saving their life. We love this as humans. We prize these things and we really have these deep longings for love and unity and diversity, community, humility, peace. All these longings that we have are really a longing to know the Trinitarian God of the Bible. Because God Himself is the perfect example of selfless love. He's the perfect example of true unity in diversity. He's the perfect example of a loving community within Himself, that God is a community within Himself. That God's a perfect example of humility and peace. And we're made to find all these longings, we're made to find their fulfillment in knowing God. That all of our deepest longings point us to a relationship with God where we can find these deepest longings, find their fulfillment, find our deepest desires to be fixed on Him. Now, we can you know, live in the world and enjoy all kinds of great things like community and friendship, but it's always going to be kind of hollow and not enough if we don't have a relationship with God to truly bring us the longing that we want. So we see all these things in our own hearts that point to the Trinitarian God of the Bible, who He is, and our desire to have a relationship with Him. All right, so one more question, and we'll begin to wrap up. But you know, that's you know, some more philosophical kind of big picture stuff. But even practically, you know, how does the Trinity affect my everyday life? Let me just give you a few kind of thoughts about it, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. The Trinity, it should make us humble. You know, we can't fully understand it because we're not God. So let's humble ourselves and admit that we're not God and let God be God, and we just understand what He's given us and trust Him in it. The Trinity should also make us loving. That, that love itself comes from the Trinitarian God. That we learn to love others as we look at the way that God is love, how He's loved us, how even the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, that the Spirit uh, loves the Son and the Father by being sent out. Like all this stuff within the Trinity, we can learn what love really looks like by looking to the Trinitarian God, because God is love. So it should make us loving. The Trinity should also make us worship. Uh, the Trinity is incredible, it's beautiful, it's mysterious. So it should lead us to want to worship this beautiful God that's so mysterious, that's so powerful, and that wants to know us and bring us into a relationship with Him. It should make us worship. The Trinity should make us hospitable. You know, God Himself is a community, that God is a loving community within just the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So He, being a community, then leads us to also want to live in community. It should lead us to, be, to want to be hospitable and welcoming to other people in the way that God has really welcomed us into His own life. Also, the Trinity should make us seek unity in diversity. You know, just as God is, is a one God who is in three persons, but yet they're deeply connected, we should want to create a, a society where we're unified, where there's peace, but also a place where we can care for each other in the midst of all of our diversity. That God being a unity but yet diverse should lead us to want to create a society that is united but also celebrates diversity. Because that's even who God is. And then lastly, the Trinity should teach us to be submissive. You know, just as Jesus Himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, He prayed to the Father, 
saying, not my will, but your will be done. Just in that way, we can also learn to submit our lives to God the Father, that we can learn submission even from the Trinity. So, so many things we could probably keep talking about, but overall, we can know this, that God is a relational God that has welcomed us into a relationship with Him so that we can experience the true joy that only comes from Him. That's, what, that's why the Trinity matters. That's why it's so amazing. And that's honestly why I think the Trinity is probably the most crucial aspect of who God is. And we can spend our whole life studying it and never really understand it, but we can be captured more and more by its beauty because that's the beauty of who God is. So maybe tonight I've kind of sparked an interest in you in, in studying this more. Um, I mentioned a book last week, Delighting in the Trinity. Fantastic book on this. Highly encourage you to read that if you want to go deeper in it. Um, but besides that, we're going to wrap up this conversation about the Trinity. Um, but I just want to remind you, if you have any questions from tonight that you'd like answered next week, uh, the number here on the side is a number you can text any question, and I'll do my best to answer it. I don't promise to have all the answers, but I can do some research. But text that number. I'll do my best to answer it next week. Um, but next week, where are we going? Well, we talked about the Bible, talked about God. Now we're going to talk about us. Next week, we'll look at the question, who are we? Specifically looking at two questions. You know, What does the Bible uh, teach us? about being created humans? Uh, And also, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? So looking at creation of humanity and looking at image of God next week, I think it'll be very helpful for us. Uh, But thanks for tuning in, and we will see you next week.